Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune guides us through the fall movie season. And I talk to Javier Peña, the real DEA agent that helped bring down drug lord and head of the Medellin cartel, Pablo Escobar. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Thanks for joining us as we continue to give you the entertainment blueprint for your fall season here on Pop Culture Confidential. This week, we're looking at the coming fall movies with film critic Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune. I also talked to Javier Peña, the DEA agent who spent years investigating the Medellin cartel and chasing the infamous drug lord Pablo Escobar. Mr. Peña is featured in a new National Geographic docuseries called Facing that looks at the real stories behind some of modern history's most larger-than-life characters, and first up is Pablo Escobar. Javier Peña is also a consultant on the Netflix hit series Narcos, where he's played by the actor Pedro Pascal. But first, I'd just like to take a little moment to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to the listeners and supporters of the show. We are passing 50 shows, and it's just so great and humbling. And so we decided that this calls for a small celebration of sorts. So to our Stockholm listeners or any listeners passing by Stockholm, we're really excited to announce a Pop Culture Confidential Meetup on Friday, September 16th. So come by. It's going to be really awesome to meet you all. We hope that as many of you as possible will want to join us, but space is limited. So RSVP on popcultureconfidential.com. So last week marked the end of the official Hollywood summer movie season, and a jam-packed fall lies ahead with hundreds of releases. The fall seems to mark the return of many heavy hitters, directors such as Oliver Stone, Scorsese, Clint Eastwood, Mel Gibson. And how will the controversy surrounding director-actor Nate Parker affect his much-awaited film Birth of a Nation? And are there any female directors at all heading towards this year's Oscar season? I'm very happy to be joined by veteran film critic Michael Phillips. I'm a longtime reader of his film reporting and reviews at the Chicago Tribune, where he's been since 2002. Phillips appeared frequently on At the Movies with Ebert and Roper. He was one of the numerous guest critics filling in for Roger Ebert when he was on medical leave. He's also a frequent guest host on the Chicago Public Radio Show and the great podcast Film Spotting. Mr. Phillips, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm so thrilled you're a fan of uh, Film Spotting, which I just come into occasionally heckle. Adam and Josh, <laughs> and I think. But, uh, I yeah, love I, film I, spotting. I've been listening for years, actually. Do they do they know they have a big fan in Stockholm? Do they? Could be. I have emailed and donated a few times, actually. All right, I'm going to pass this on. It's at, it's Adam Kempinar's, uh, the co-host's birthday today, so I will pass oh. this on. This is excellent. Happy birthday from Sweden. Well, okay. we have so much to cover for the fall. There's Oscar buzz and there's big controversy and some big directors coming back. But it's a big question. But what start us off a bit about the most awaited fall movies for you? I have. I did not cover Sundance. I have not seen Nate Parker's The Birth of a Nation. Uh, but, you know, that came out of Sundance just roaring. And Fox Searchlight pays a record amount of money. $17.5 million, which is a phenomenal amount of money for a um, lowish budget film out of Sundance. Uh, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's about the 1831 slave slave rebellion, the uprising uh, led by the Baptist preacher, Nat Turner. And um, 
uh, you know, Nate Parker's, uh, unfortunately, the, the, the rape ag- accusations that have been dogging him since 1999 when he, as a Penn State College student, you know, was was accused of. Um, uh, this is the director of, for the listeners. The director, of, right. the director and star, star of the right. nation. Yeah, uh, you know, all the the rape accusations. He was acquitted, but the the, uh, the his accuser committed suicide, and you know, he has been dealing with all of that um, controversy instead of talking about his film, and it's been it's been very difficult to even tune that out, and and then hopefully clear your head and and receive the movie. For what it is or isn't, you know, I don't know. How do you think that the film company will deal with this? Yeah, I mean, they're dealing with the best they can. I, I think they've taken a little bit of a step back in terms of how much press uh, the writer, director, Nate Parker is doing at the moment. But he is, you know, as far as I know, he's coming to Chicago with the film and I'll be talking to him. But and it, and it, it it brings up a big question in a moviegoer's mind or a critic's mind: how much how much do you let that um, noise and and that newsworthy to to an extent, you know, a very newsworthy and and serious uh, business that has nothing to do with the film at hand. How do you let that sort of cloud and inform, let's say, the experience of, of just even dealing with the movie? Mel Gibson had the same problem, and he's coming back. Yeah, he's coming back with Hacksaw Ridge. You know, a, a film. Uh, you know, this is a film that will <laughs> try not to be too prejudgmental about it, but. This is a film directed by a, uh, a confirmed rageaholic, violence-loving, you know, anti-Semitic, you know, alcohol, you know, I mean, you name it. But, you know, it's it, we have to take the film at face value. And uh, for me, my role is just to simply to forget temporarily how much I detested The Passion of the Christ and give this one a fair shot. So another film that, honestly, what we talked about earlier, just about prejudging for good or ill by the trailers People have been very strong on the new Damien Chazelle film, La La Land. Right. And, musical, and that, right? Musical. And this is a, a director I really adore. He's, his first two movies of a micro-budget student film called Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. Do you know that film? No, I don't. But I, I'm Nobody knows it. It, no. it made, made $35,000 in the U.S. and died. But the, but a, a handful of critics really loved it, and then he went on to Whiplash, which is better known. And J.K. Simmons got the supporting actor Oscar for that. That's the story of the jazz drummer uh, at a fictional you know uh, music conservatory who kind of comes under the wing and maybe under the spell of this demonic uh, instructor played by J.K. Simmons. Anyway, this is his third movie. The guy's made two fantastic films up till now, mm-hmm. and. Just simply, if you're just by going by the math, you have to you have to go into seeing his third film, a much bigger budget picture with Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, is set in a kind of a fantasy version of L.A. Um, based on the trailers, it looks mouthwatering. It looks like it's very devoted to the style and the tone of the musicals that Jacques Demy did with um, uh, Young Girls of Rochefort and uh, and The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't it be great if it was great if, if it was an honest yes, to God. Let's make that great. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 possible, and and people certainly the people that run the big festivals of the fall, the Venice Festival, which I'm going to the, for, for the first time, and the Toronto Festival, the programmers who who have arranged for that for that film to be part of it, uh, they're very high in it. So you know, who knows? I hope they're not lying. City of stars, are you shining just for me? City of stars, 
And I'm um, continuing on with sort of men with, well, I don't know how much controversy is, but he did talk to a chair. Clint Eastwood will be back with, I think it's his eighth biopic in quite a short amount of time, 10 years or something, with Sully about the um, pilot who landed in the Hudson River um, with Tom right. Hanks. This is Tom Hanks, yes, yes. We'll see. I mean, it's, it's for those who don't know the story, this is, you know, U.S. Airways pilot uh, Sully Sullenberger hit this, hit a flock of geese. The, and uh, and this forced this m- amazing emergency landing on the Hudson River. No lives lost. You know, he becomes a national hero almost overnight. And then, and this is kind of the lesser known part of the story. There's this, uh, there's an investigation that followed that, well, was, was this really uh, a necessary emergency landing? You know, did he in fact endanger the lives he un- ended up saving just by trying it? Our job is to investigate how a plane ended up in the Hudson River. On the Hudson. It's not a crash. It was a forced water landing. Simulation showed that you could make it back to the airport. Not possible. I felt it go. My aircraft. Your aircraft. I want you to know I did the best I could. Of course you did. You saved everyone. People call you a hero. I don't feel like a hero. Show us your cape, Supercell! There's been too much talk in the press already. I'm overwhelmed by all this attention. The left engine was still operating. What if I didn't get this wrong? What if I endangered the lives of all those passengers? I got an A320 diving for the river. You did everything you could. It was more than enough. It's, it's the first time Tom Hanks has worked with Eastwood. Um, you know what you say about how just how prolific Eastwood is. It's remarkable. He's kind of he's kind of the uh, one of the few connections we have to old Hollywood, where you know the days of Ford and Howard Hawks and so many others who really were really pro- prolific, uh, very kind of plain spoken, unadorned visual style. Um, you know, I I'm more. I guess I'd say I'm more wildly mixed on Eastwood's output the last 20 years than others. Other people really think he's our finest living director. And I, I just, you know, I, I look at a, a handful of films I truly, truly admire, Unforgiven and um, Letters from Iwo Jima, and, and then a whole bunch of them that I just don't re- regard as highly. I really hope Sully turns into the ones I love. You know, that's... Um, um, I, you know, I'm very interested to see how how Hanks, frankly, responds to kind of the Eastwood tone, you know, and and uh, um, you know, it's based on Sully's memoir, and and I think sometimes with some biopics, Christina, you can kind of tell that we're we're getting a strongly uh, articulated one side of the story, and 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 maybe that's enough, depending on the filmmaking and. Sometimes it isn't, depending on the screenwriting. You know? Right, so, right. I heard uh, so we'll that see. there was some voices already, as as per usual, I guess, with this type of hero story, saying that uh, he didn't have to land that way or it wasn't such a heroic thing. I don't know exactly what, what but I guess maybe that comes with the territory. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, and, and it has to, you know, that movie has to uh, make make its case uh, not on our knowledge and our memories of, of how that was handled in the media, but just fresh because it's like 2009 wasn't that long ago, but it's an eternity in the media cycle. Right, so right. It, just has to, it just has to work as a story. And, uh, you know, hope, hopefully Eastwood's storytelling instincts, uh, which can really serve him well when he's on, uh, will, will prove accurate this time. Right. And then we have another sort of, old school, big male director. I'm going to see if you have any women to come in. Oliver Stone coming up with Snowden. How, what do you think of that? Oliver Stone, you know, he's the opposite of Clint Eastwood, I think, 
visually. He's, he's, he can be such a visual hysteric, uh, Oliver Stone, and often it's dazzling and, and, and uh, immersive and kind of kind of amazing. Uh, and I'm going into the story of Snowden. I, I just would hope that Stone treats it with the kind of the moral complexity that it deserves, uh, because I think a character like that, however however well he's acted by Joseph. Gordon-Levitt needs uh, many dimensions and a lot of gray area right. for it to make any dramatic sense. Otherwise, otherwise, you really will smell a rat. Um, whether whether it's inflating him into heroism, he doesn't quite merit, or if it's you know, and it won't be this way. But, it, but you could also take a biopic like that if you had a, a truly skeptical director and just turn it into kind of a uh, a hatchet job and and you know you don't want that either because the movie's over in 10 minutes if you do that so um i don't know as stone's a guy for me it's been a long time since he's made a truly vital and uh, um and really solid picture so uh i'd love it if this was a return to form this is everything i have they're gonna figure out what i've done did you access an unauthorized program the government knows that we have these documents now. You're looking at a possible death sentence. I can't turn back from this. Watch yourself. We are running out of time. They're going to come for me. They're going to come for all of you, too. And do you think this is a Michael Keaton year? I'm I'm really curious about this movie he's making about the founder of McDonald's, and that's pretty much all I know about it. Yeah, yeah, Ray Kroc. Now, <laughs> I, this is uh, this is a uh, this will this will ask the question. The movie will ask the question: Does anybody care outside the the uh, the immediate uh, you know sphere of of Ray Kroc and McDonald's in the U.S. And really, although God knows it's a global brand, but. Um, um, you know, I, I I love I love that Keaton is back. I love that Birdman uh, really kind of reintroduced him to people as a different sort of actor, and I I love that he you know was such solid uh, uh, low key support in that fantastic ensemble in Spotlight. Right. Last and this is this would be if he if he can if he can make <laughs> if he can help make that person's story ray Kroc's story uh compelling um you know you know it would be it would be a real feather in his camp i am flesh and i am bone rise up ting ting like glitter and gold how can we be almost out of capital did you mortgage our home we could lose everything i want to renegotiate my lousy deal i can't can't or won't ray what no oh damn it what you ought to be doing is owning the land upon which that burger is cooked you're not in the burger business. You're in the real estate business. Franchise Realty Corporation. It's its own separate company, which puts it outside your purview. Contracts are like hearts. They're made to be broken. That glorious name, McDonald's. I had to have it. You don't have it. You sure about that? When an actor like that becomes a star, uh, and then the stardom changes or sort of fades because he turns into a different age range or a different sort of actor or the Batman franchises go away or, you know, a lot of things. 
they they have to turn into actors again. And that's kind of what we're seeing with Keaton right now. We're seeing him required, and I think happily, to turn into a, a different sort of actor who has to challenge himself. And I, I hope I hope this biopic is up to it. So it can be between Hanks and um, Keaton at the Oscars. Maybe so, but, you know, who knows about Ryan Gosling, a guy who, um, you know, if he can really sing and dance and he's required to do sing and, and it's and that and La La Land works. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, we're still very early in the cycle. And uh, Benedict Cumberbatch for Doctor Strange, maybe it's a Marvel movie that actually uh, will engage people who have just about had it with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. I mean, So I completely forgot about two other big old school directors coming back, both Scorsese and Warren Beatty. What do you what do you make of their return? Uh, Warren Beatty has been making his Howard Hughes movie, which has got the title now, uh, Rules Don't Apply. He's been making it forever and it's been <laughs> it's been uh, it's been in post-production forever. And so we'll see what what kind of movie he's even got. got uh, you know, it's not I don't think the leading role, but I think it's a it's a key supporting role. Um, and, you know, a little bit of fiction, a little bit of fact, and, uh, you know, we'll see. I, I think back to the Jonathan Demme film I liked so much, uh, with Jason Robards playing Hughes in a film I just love, Jonathan Demme's film, Melvin and Howard, a lovely little movie. People don't remember much now, but, um, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot for an actor to play, you know, this sort of like nutty recluse who, uh, who's got such a fantastic, uh, you know, history, <laughs> but uh, as a movie maker, as an entrepreneur, as an aviator, everything. But um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's, I, I, it feels like a small film and I, I suspect the Scorsese film silence um, based on the Japanese novel is going to be, is going to feel like a very big film. And that's, that took a long time to kind of finance and uh, get made. But um, I heard uh, it's his longest film in, in time. I mean, in terms of minutes <laughs> that he's, you know, made. when, I think when you get to be that point in your in a career uh, and you're in your Scorsese's age, maybe 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 you just feel like taking the extra 30, 40 minutes right. to t- say what ahead. you want to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's I mean, you know, how it is sometimes it's wonderfully justified, and other some of the longest movies I've ever seen were ninety minutes long. You know what I mean? Right, right. What about the uh, women? Are there any women to speak of? There's so many big. Male directors were talking about coming back. What What do you say? No, no. Uh, there, uh, they. We don't. Uh, I think they've actually been officially banned from making films in the states. Mm. So, uh, no, not really. But they, but last year we had the Oscars hashtag Oscars so white, and the only my only problem with that uh, is that it took attention away from how how damn male centric the movie industry is in this country and. Because Oscar's so male, and it, we're finally, you know, slowly making a little headway just to get people to realize that it's a numbers game. That if you that we have to have more directors uh, in the swim and in the production pipeline than simply the ones we already know. Catherine Bigelow has got a film about the Detroit riots coming up next year. Uh, Ava Duvernay, Ava Duvernay, whose Selma was terrific last year, and who's got a Disney project, A Wrinkle in Time, that's coming out next year. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you have various female protagonists we'll be seeing on screen this fall, like Emily Blunt and the girl on the train, other, you know, pl- plenty of plenty of others there. But it's really more a matter of 
uh, not just females top lining a movie, but uh, you know, are there are, are there are they behind the camera? Are they telling this? Are they getting to tell the story like they do in series television, all over cable and streaming every which way? Uh, you know, for now, television is kicking the movies, but in terms of just you know a certain amount of plurality and inclusion about who's going to tell what stories. Right, right. No, this year seems particular, or this fall, um, just talking to you now, I'm realizing it seems very heavy because it's also a bunch of sort of iconic big male names and, and it seems very um, tilted towards one direction. But no, maybe other things will come up. Yeah, and I, it, may, it may be it may simply be mm, that the studios feel like that is the stuff, that's the freight that gets the attention at the end of the, you know, at the beginning of the awards cycle and, and at the end of the year. And um, it's it's easier, frankly, at other times, every other season, to kind of get the work, you know, the the other work, the under the radar stuff out there, and at least at least the chance to be seen. So it's up more and more. It's up to the critics and anybody who's got a early look at anything to kind of keep their eyes open and look harder and bring the attention to the stuff that can't can't be heard with all the other noise right I'm very um, I'm, I'm looking forward to a movie called loving oh yeah yeah, yeah. this is Jeff, Jeff Nichols a film a wonderful writer director who made the film mud and take shelter which is terrific and uh, more recently midnight special. And this is a true story of a, a segregation ca- uh, case uh, in Virginia, 1958. Interracial couple um, uh, married, in, you know, uh, uh, marriage annulled by the state. And the case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. This is a, a, a tiny slice of what was going on just before the civil rights era took off and got hold, it really caught hold and really started making meaningful change all around the country. Um, you know, this was 1958, Virginia, not an easy place to, uh, to have any kind of interracial anything, obviously. Richard Perry Loving being a white person and Mildred Jeter being a colored person did unlawfully cohabitate as man and wife. Richard? I believe this is a battle that could go all the way to the Supreme Court. I mean, we ain't hurt anybody. The state of Virginia will argue that it is unfair to bring children of mixed race into the world. You realize this case could alter the Constitution of the United States. Do you think you'll lose? We may lose the small battles, but win the big war. Is there anything you'd like me to say to the Supreme Court justices of the United States? Yeah. Tell the judge I love my wife. You know, I heard I heard good things coming out of the Cannes Film Festival about Loving earlier this year. Uh, it was the first Cannes I hadn't covered in about ten years, so uh, that was one where I thought, ah, boy, those are performances um, from uh, Ruth uh, Nega and uh, um, Joel Egerton, I believe. Right. Yeah. Uh, that I, I were even the even people that were cooler on the film. Uh, we're very strong on uh, the actress and the actor. So yeah, um, you can see just in the trailer if the listeners want to go look at. You can just sort of tell that they have a chemistry. That the couple, which name was loving, um, um, seemed to have. So so I'm looking forward to that. And then finally, do you think Rogue One is going to be the Star Wars hit that we 
just seemed to went go through with Force Awakens, right. which is right, the right. <laughs> we'll see. You know, here's my hope for that. Um, as I'm not, I, I wouldn't call myself a Star Wars ambivalent, but I'm not quite. Um, you know, my I'm not quite this the maniacal childhood. Uh, fan, uh, I might have been just a couple of years too old for me to really like, really, really live for the next Star Wars film. But now that we had the reboot from last year successfully launched and out of the way, I my hope is that we follow the template from the first two pictures, which which meant that the second film, The Empire Strikes Back, way back in 1980, uh, was quite a bit better and more interesting than the first Star Wars. a mission for you. A major weapons test is imminent. We need to know what it is and how to destroy it. Is that clear? Yes, sir. What will you do when they catch you? What will you do if they break you? You continue to fight. What will you become? Wouldn't it be great if this new spin-off, you know, and, and we're going to, God knows, we'll be living in the Star Wars universe until I die. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it wouldn't it be great if this film really, truly went its own way, idiosyncratic, you know, great action, but less of a kind of corporate uh, directive, maybe? Do you know what I mean? I mean, you know, maybe less concerned about playing both to the old fans of the old Star Wars and the kids who don't know anything about it. And, you know, sometimes movies get very blanded out when they're trying to hit every quadrant, every possible audience segment. Because right. um, this one know, really has nothing to do with Force Awakens. It's a completely no, different director. It's no, another right. time. And, I mean, it's like, yeah. Right. And and all, all, all you want is what you want from every Star Wars film, which is just show me something I haven't seen before and and make it look like something. Make it look like something I want to see again. Yeah, well, that's, I was just going to say, show me something I haven't seen. On the other hand, you really want to see Han Solo again, and we really enjoyed the stuff we saw again in Force Awakens. Right. <laughs> my favorite my favorite thing on Twitter the last week is a, a, a fellow critic who uh, uh, works out, he's Sam Adams, uh, tweeted that his seven-year-old daughter uh, was waiting for uh, – it was, it was a book series. I forget which book series, but – she, she told him, like, like, oh, man, I wish there was a sequel to this book. You know, I don't care if it's any good. I just want to see it. And then he said, that is sequels explained. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> and, and, but you want better than that. You hope that, my God, these movies cost anywhere between 100 and $200 million. And they, they do take their time in, in development to, to hope, from their point of view, get the scripts right. And you would hope that you, would hope that you can get real – populist magic out of a star wars picture and you know, the last one was pretty good and but you'd like you'd like one step up from there is there anything we've we've not mentioned that that you can think of for the fall that you'd like to 
get in there. But uh, you know what? Honestly, I just hope that La La Land is as good as the trailers make it look. And uh, as as a as a complete whore for musicals, I and and as somebody whose heart is continually broken by mediocre movie musicals, <laughs> I I would love it if this if this if Damien Chazelle, who really knows his stuff and knows Vincent Minnelli and knows Jacques Demy, if he can find a way to and really. And really knows tempo, I would say, after, uh, or, you know, music and after the drumming and, and what he did last time in Whiplash. That Whiplash, he- that's a good point. Yes. Yeah, no, he does. He knows how to cut to the, he knows how to cut to the beat, but also on the offbeat. And um, uh, I, I'd love it if that film, you know, were as good as, as some of the images in the trailer suggested it could be. But If you had to today um, say a best picture race, three or four movies. If it was happening mm. tomorrow, what would you say of these? Oh, uh, boy. Um, you know, I wonder if, if by the time the controversy about the writer-director, Nate Parker, dies down a little bit, I wonder if Birth of a Nation won't be in that race. I, I, it sounds very strongly like La La Land, especially if it has serious audience appeal. Um, uh, would probably be another, you know, strong. I think Billy Lynn's uh, long halftime walk, uh, the Ang Lee film, mm-hmm. uh, based on a very popular novel, which is going to deal with, you know, some some difficult topical issues about the Ra- Iraq War and, you know, what one young fictional soldier is experiencing in the wake of uh, some really horrific combat and and also difficult times on the home front. Uh, that seems like, you know, that that has elements story elements thematic elements that if if the movie works it it would be it would be recognized as such so mm. um you know have, now that we're still in the, we're in that realm where we can nominate 8 10 you know pictures for in that for best picture you can get a pretty interesting variety Michael Phillips thank you so much this was great thank you it's great to talk to you Thank you so much to Mr. Michael Phillips. Read his film reporting at the Chicago Tribune and tune in to Film Spotting, where he's a frequent guest host. And now, one of the world's most notorious and dangerous criminals, Pablo Escobar, is at the center of much on television this fall. Season two of the hit TV series Narcos premieres on September 2nd, and it takes off where season one ended, with Pablo Escobar on the run from justice. And National Geographic kicks off its new docu-series, Facing. These are hour-long episodes tackling myths and truths behind powerful headline makers, Saddam Hussein and Arnold Schwarzenegger, to name a few. The first episode is Facing Escobar. And through interviews with key players, it studies the man who ruled the Medellin cocaine empire and ignited the international bloodbath that spurred the war on drugs. Escobar was a hundred times worse than I thought. He was a maniac. Pablo told me, he said, don't ever come here and tell me you screwed up. He said, I don't even want to begin to tell you the consequences for that. Pablo Emilio Escobar Gaviria era un asesino, un narcotraficante, un terrorista, pero era mi amigo. That's one man I could have shot and never lost a minute sleep about it. I wanted Escobar. I'm honored to talk to Javier Peña, one of the American DEA agents who led the investigation to bring down Pablo Escobar and the Medellin drug cartel. Mr. Pena, thank you so much for joining me. It's uh, my pleasure. 
So in 1988, you were a DEA agent, drug enforcement, working out of Texas when you took an assignment in Bogota, Colombia. What were you expecting and what was the reality? Well, I, I came out of Austin, Texas, and I did a lot of street uh, type of investigations, you know, undercover by surveillances. So I wanted to see how the rest of the bigger picture with the major traffickers work like. So I volunteered for Columbia and I get there in 88 and I'm told that I'm uh, I'm going to be assigned the Pablo Escobar investigation and I never had heard of Pablo Escobar so we started uh, investigating. We had a small uh, group of uh, Colombian National Police officers assigned and we started investigating and we found out that this guy was possibly bringing in about 80% of the cocaine into the United States and to Europe. And his empire consisted of a lot of assassins, a lot of other major traffickers, uh, and uh, was, was very, very powerful in Colombia at this time. He also had that Robin Hood uh, mistake about him where uh gave a lot of money to the poor, built churches, you know. So we were dealing with a... Uh, a, a uh, Robin Hood, but at the same time, probably the world's most barbaric narco trafficker that we had ever seen. Right. You said 80% of, of drug trafficking. How roughly, what is that in, in money terms? In, in money, if you can just you know, the kilo of cocaine in Miami in mid-80s was about sixty to $80,000. If you go to Europe, you're going to get $100,000. And these guys were flooding the streets with cocaine. So they were sending about, you know, 2,500 kilos of cocaine on a daily, daily basis. And to produce the kilo of cocaine in the jungles of Colombia was about $5,000, you know, the transportation fee. So your initial investment was 5000 for one kilo. And if you were selling Miami, you were going to get sixty to 80000 If you go to the Europe markets, you're getting 100000 So wow, wow. it's a lot of money. <laughs> so between this is between 1988 and 93, you're leading this manhunt for the most murderous criminal in, in history, or one of them, Pablo Escobar. He's really a terrorist and he's eluding you, drug enforcement. And I suppose you really had to put yourself into Escobar's head in order to anticipate his every mood. How would you describe Pablo Escobar sort of as a man, as, as how you came to know him? I mean, I knew everybody, his family, his associates. We were intercepting a lot of his calls at mm -hmm. the beginning, and he was just a ruthless, you know, a very charismatic type of a leader. When he'd go out to recruit his assassins, he, there'd be about two to 300 young kids all there, all of them wanting to work for him, and he'd hug them, you know, uh, give them money. And these guys, these young kids, were all wanted to kill for him. They would die for him. Are these the Sicarios? Yes, these are the Sicarios, so yes. And, and they wanted to kill for him because he, of this Robin Hood characteristic that he would sort of help them either? Or, or what is your theory? Yes, they uh, idolized Pablo. They, uh, they all wanted to work for him. They would die for him. And remember, Pablo would take care of their families if they got killed. And I remember interviewing one of the sicarios who admitted to killing the 10 police officers during the bounty era. In other words, when Pablo started to fight with Colombia, he was offering bounties 
on the killing of police officers. And this particular kid, I think he was like 15 years old, admitted to me that he had already killed 10 police officers, $100 a head. And he told me, he says, you know what? He says, our life expectancy here in Medellin and the, you know, comunas, the poor neighborhood is about 21, 22 years old. He says, boss pays us good. As long as I give most of my money to my mother, She's going to be taken care of. Whatever's left over, I'll buy a pair of blue jeans. And if I have drinking money, that's great. But most of my money will go to my mother. And he says, we're not expected to live beyond 22, 23 years old. That was the attitude we were fighting against. Wow. wow. And one of the more uh, peculiar things in, in the um, National Geographic documentary, someone says that, that Pablo Escobar was, was very, liked very nice bathrooms. Is this true? <laughs> You know what he had that about him? Everywhere he went, he, he, he needed a clean bathroom. It was like a calling card. We'd go up and we, we, we caught, we almost caught him a lot of times, but every time we missed him, you know, the bathroom had to be immaculate. So yeah, that was part of his pet peeve, yes. So you would come, you would almost catch him and know that he had been there because of the bathroom. <laughs> because of the bathroom and the, and the, and the food was still warm. A couple of times he had a maid or too, so they would tell us, yeah, he, he just took off, you know. So um, for you, uh, Steve Murphy and others in, in law enforcement, he, he this was sort of an unpredictable war. I would even call it terrorism. There was car bombs and, and, and totally unpredictable. Can you describe a really extreme situation for you and, and what you learned about making decisions in this environment? Yes. We call Pablo Escobar the inventor of narco-terrorism. When he declared war on Colombia, we started seeing car bombs. I had never seen a car bomb before. I mean, sometimes it would put about 10 on a daily basis. He put them at shopping malls, uh, women and children, and he had the audacity to put uh, drop a leaflet from, it was called the extraditables. In other words, that was his calling card. He was taking responsibility, and it was basically a preferred tomb in Colombia and a jail cell in the United States. Uh, so we started seeing bounties on police officers. I mean, who, who does that? The car bounce was to me my most uh, important uh, situation because, you know, wrong time at the wrong place, you would see the smoke go up. You would place them right outside our base when we would leave because we had a police search block at a police academy. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the kidnappings of politicians, he kidnapped the daughter of an ex-president of Colombia, Diana Tubai, who lost her life during the rescue attempt. So it, it, it was an all-out terrorism war, and I wasn't used to that. We had never seen that. And so that was the, you know, and I lost a lot of good friends, a lot of good police officers that were killed by, by Pablo Escobar. So it, it was something that we were not used to. And how did you, what did you learn? How did you learn in terms of law enforcement from this new situation? Yeah, from the law enforcement side, we we learned that we needed better intelligence. We needed more information on Escobar. So we did a lot of... technical type of uh, surveillances on him. We recruited informants. We offered a, uh, a reward for him. Uh, so we started getting organized. We, you know, the, in the United States, we started also going after anybody that was working for Pablo Escobar. So our, our, uh, our technique was to try to uh, dismantle 
from Escobar from the bottom all the way to the top, all the associates, money launderers, the guys that were buying his plane. So it was a new strategy that we, uh, uh, that we had in place. I understand there was a price on your head. You saw all these horrible things, living sort of in a constant state of, of uncertainty and terror. Has this taken a personal toll on you and how? Yes, it took a personal toll. I mean, there was times where I was like, wow, you know, maybe, you know, we wish, we hope he surrenders, we lost. I mean, you know, look at all the people that are getting killed all because of Pablo Escobar. You know, all the innocent people, you know, the Alianca Airlines, the DOS building bombing, uh, the assassination of presidential candidate Luis Carlos Galán. Yes, it took a toll. It was, you know, for sometimes people just say, man, we should just maybe, you know, let him surrender and off we go. But however, the thing that kept us going was that revenge, that personal revenge. And I always remember our police officers, the guys we work with, they're saying, hey, we're not here to seize dope. We're not here to seize money. We're here to kill Pablo Escobar because he's killed a lot of our people. So it, it was that driving force that uh, helped us throughout the search. Right. What's your strongest memory from the day he was killed? The strongest memory was, uh, was a, a sigh of we won. You know, it was relief. There's not going to be any more bombs. There's not going to be any more Pablo Escobar-related killings. People are going to survive. And also, it was for the memory of all the people that he killed. It was that satisfaction where a, you know, a monster uh, gets killed. And, you know, and my question was, why did he waste this war on on all the innocent people? So it was a sigh of, like I said, gratification, satisfaction, knowing that, you know what, that we finally uh, got the perpetrator who killed thousands and thousands of innocent people. The so-called war on drugs that the, the U.S. implemented, that, you know, part of this, do you, today, in hindsight, after doing all this that you did, do you think this was right? Yes. I mean, you, you have to go after the the main traffickers, especially if they're killing innocent people. You you know, even if, you got to go after them. Even, and, but the lessons we learned, what happened after Pablo Escobar's building cartel got taken down, the Cali cartel started operating. We took them down in the North Valley. And if you look at all the Mexico cartels, somebody takes over as long as there's a demand. And as long as there's somebody out there who says, I'm going to make money in selling dope. I mean, we're, it's, it's not done stop. You know, uh, you ask me what the solution is. I wish I knew. I, I believe a lot of, I believe a lot in our education process, in our socialization process, in starting up younger in the schools with kids about the dangers of all of this drugs that are out there. And uh, that to me is the answer. I do not believe in legalization. A lot of countries have tried it. I don't think it's it, it, it works. But however, and the drugs out there are that are out there are very dangerous. You know, the, some of the synthetic marijuana is killing people. You know, I came from Houston, uh, Texas. I was in charge there, and we had the, you know, we had the factories there where they were making it. They make them in cement mixers. Mm-hmm. Uh, kids smoke one one of the synthetic joints. They were in the hospital. I mean, it's it's a bad situation. So, you you know, so I just believe in the education process. However. 
you, you still got to go after those main guys. Right. In the documentary, The, the National Jihad, there's a, a man called Popeye who's interviewed. He's one of Escobar's closest henchmen, maybe one could say. And it seems like he was just released from jail before the filming of this documentary. And I think it's Mr. Murphy who says that he's pretty sure that someone will kill him very soon when he's out. Um, how are things today? Are, are things in, in Medellin? Is it still sort of an Escobar rule? Yeah, Medellin's a beautiful city and I recommend people, tourists, to visit. I was just there not too long ago. We were in Bogota. Colombia's a great, safe place right now mm-hmm. and we encourage people to visit. However, you know, I mean, I'll be honest, in Medellin, you're still going to have a lot of people who still worship Pablo Escobar. You know? And some people are going to be just don't bad mouth Pablo Escobar there because, you know, you'll never know. But it's a beautiful city. Right, right. Who Who is it that he means would kill Popeye? I mean, is it people from Escobar or others or as revenge? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, you know what, and I refuse to participate uh, in any of that discussion with Popeye because I don't like the guy. Uh, he killed a lot of innocent people, and I just do not want to glamorize him. And I think, I mean, he'll, uh, someone will catch up with him sooner or later. Right. You are a consultant on um, Netflix hit and fabulous TV series Narcos, where Pedro Pascal plays you. Um, how accurate is the series from your point of view? It- you know what? Um, we, we told them the real story. Obviously, there's some literary, uh, you know, artistic licenses in place, but the chronology is accurate. The, uh, the timeline is accurate. And Pedro Pascal is a good friend of mine, and I think he does a great job. And uh, it's, you know what? And uh, one of the reasons we did it was with, uh, with Netflix, and I'm sure Steve told you we did it. As long as they would not glamorize Pablo Escobar, and I don't think they did. Pablo Escobar has escaped from prison. Yeah. It was the biggest law enforcement blunder of all time. Jesus. And now we wanted payback. An alliance is forming with the objective of taking out Escobar. This wasn't a manhunt. This was an invasion. But the problem was... Pablo, but never more dangerous than when you almost have him. So it's it's a this is a lesson in history where people should I hope they do not uh, forget, and it's something where we need to learn from our mistakes. Well, thank you very much for this interview and for everything you have done. I really appreciate your time. Anytime. Thank you again for having me on the on the show. Thank you so much to Mr. Javier Peña and Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune. The National Geographic documentary Facing Escobar premiered in the U.S. on August 30th and in Sweden on Sunday, September 25th on the National Geographic channel. Narcos Season 2 premieres on Netflix September 2nd. Let us know what movies you're looking forward to via our Twitter on at PodPopCulture. And Stockholmers, remember to sign up for the meetup on September 16th, popcultureconfidential.com. We're looking forward to seeing you there. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Borg, and produced by René Witterstedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greenie. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's 
nearly impossible. It could be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, (laughs) maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. (laughs) There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green.